Hello, 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 and welcome back to Stock Club. It's me, Emmett, back from holiday in France and ready to rock with this week's episode. Regular listeners will know that this show is proudly sponsored by Vodafone Business. As it happens, since co-founding My Wall Street, all of this business's mobile and broadband is with Vodafone. But what's interesting to me as a lifelong investor is a company's purpose. Vodafone's purpose is to connect for a better future. When it comes to businesses, Vodafone really are enabling Irish companies to grow and thrive in a digital world because now they're offering digital advice and solutions. So if you own a business, big or small or medium, just talk to them. Just talk to Vodafone. Okay, on with the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Stop Club, I keep doing that. Stock Club. Um, Emmett, welcome to the show. You've been Thanks, off for Mike. a couple of weeks. Welcome back from your holidays. How are you getting on? Oh, good, yeah. I was down uh, halfway down the west coast of France on a small island called Ile de Ré, which is a very beautiful spot. Highly recommend it. If you're an Irish listener, hop on the plane, fly to La Rochelle, short hop, lovely place. Not so bad. And how's, how's all the Savage family? All good. You didn't pull each other's hair out in France. <laughs> we got along very well as usual. And uh, now we've all kind of drifted back into our separate ways. I have one son who's gone to the Gwailtocht. And that's uh, for our non-Irish listeners, the region's parts of Ireland where only the Irish language is spoken. And it's a rite of passage, I think, for young people to head to the Gwailtocht, which for the most part are concentrated in the west of Ireland. Um and they live with a family that only speak the Irish language and they actually have great crack, which is an Irish word for fun, as opposed mm. to the American meaning. Yeah, and loads of shifting. That's right, loads of shifting, another Irish word, <laughs> <laughs> which we won't translate. No. Okay. Um, I thought it would be good just six months into the year to look back and kind of do a mini review, a kind of a halftime analysis if you will um and it has it's been a really fruitful year so far for investors uh kind of checking in we have the s p was up about 17 percent for the first six months of the year the nasdaq was nearly double that so we've really seen a bounce back from all the doom and gloom that was rife in 2022 so emma what are your thoughts on the year so far in the markets yeah well as you say mike the s p 500 is up 17 percent it opened at about 3,800 points and it's about 4,450 as we record. In fact, the NASDAQ, which is the second largest stock market in the world, uh, just behind the New York Stock Exchange, has shown exceptional performance this year. Um, it's outperformed its counterparts in the US and pretty much everywhere else in the world with gains of over 30% in the first half of 2023. And the driving force behind this rally is basically the technology element of the Nasdaq. It's a tech-heavy in index, the Nasdaq index. And uh, I guess the generative artificial intelligence revolution, which is better known as OpenAI, uh, ChatGBT, to most people is kind of part of that story. And the success of technology giants in America um, I mean, is there any other type of tech giant? American seems it seems like to be a tech giant, you need to be domiciled in America or Israel. Um, but the, 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 these tech giants have been the defining feature of the mm. growth this year are the magnificent seven, as they're known, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla, Alphabet, um, Amazon and Meta. So they're the magnificent seven and they have dominated global market indices and helped these indexes recover from 2022's bear. Now, without the influence of these seven stocks, the Magnificent, magnificent Seven, there would have been little or no increase in the S&P 500. And that's really interesting effect that we've spoken about here before, Mike. And if you don't own uh, some of these seven tech stocks in large part, it's highly likely that your portfolio is at very best flat or mm. more likely it's down. So there's a pseudo bull or a hidden bear. I don't know what way to say it, but <laughs> the, these seven businesses have really kind of tricked those people who look at the index. And as yeah. I said, the Nasdaq, which is concentrated on these particular stocks, has risen by about a third since the start of the year. And then we've discussed 
NVIDIA in detail in recent podcasts. In fact, I can't remember if I was, you know, if I was even on the podcast. I'm so hardwired into this uh, podcast, even when I'm not on it. If I hear someone else say it, it goes into my brain. And I think I was yeah. it, we had a good chat about well, NVIDIA. I think we had a podcast titled NVIDIA, NVIDIA, NVIDIA. So oh, yeah. And, I, and yeah, mentioned was, was it. I? mentioned in every episode since as well we talked a lot about it yeah last week with um, michael lucas too that's right it's this year's it's this year's tesla i mean this is occurring at a time when other global stocks indices are being pretty negatively affected by inflation by tighter lending standards basically a global global economic slowdown but Ben Carlson, who you very often referenced uh, mm. here in the podcast, and we're all a fan of Ben Carlson. He ran the numbers on the calendar year's return um, for the S&P 500 from 1928 to 2022. So that's uh, 94 years. And here's the stats that he found associated with the S&P 500. Almost six out of every 10 years on the stock market has seen gains of in excess of 10%. A little more than one out of every three years has returned 20% or more, and nearly one out of every five years was up 30% or better. And less than, excuse me, less than one out of every 10 years has seen um, year-end gains with something between 5 and 10%. Now, that's all the upside. When we look at the other side, about one in every four years has finished down and about one in every eight years has had a double-digit down year. But, I mean, there are a lot of things to absorb, especially if you're just listening to a podcast, but what that says in essence. Well, the general gist of it is that it's a lot more likely to skew positive than negative. Oh, you're you're on the money there. And like in 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 the words of Ben, he said, while big gains have been a higher probability bet historically than most investors probably imagine, large drawdowns also occur more often than people assume. Um, but you're right, for every, in fact, you know, if you had to write it down in the back of a matchbox, it's for every two up years, there's one down year. And that basically, mm. those maths work out. And I think when we introduce this relatively new effect of the Magnificent Seven, are just a small handful of companies driving the entire gains of an index with 500 companies. There is a deeper level of analysis required, which I haven't done for this podcast, but definitely when you, I wonder what would all the indices look like if you stripped out the top 10 performers and it would paint a very different picture. Mm. Yeah, no, I, it, it's, not, it's not unique for the market to be dominated by a couple of big companies, but I think where we're sitting now, I, I hadn't checked. I checked it a couple of weeks ago. It was around 25% in the top five. So that's mm-hmm. not even including uh, Tesla and Facebook in that. So it is, it's not uncommon for this to happen, but it is an extreme level of that's it right, right. Now, I think. Yeah, it's far more profound than ever before. Anyway, Mike, you've been looking a little further afield. How was the first half of the year in those international markets that we don't uh, discuss as often as we do the US markets? Yeah, so I was kind of curious when we broached this topic of, well, it was talking about the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ had the best start, best first six months of the year in 40 years. It's not since mm-hmm. 1983 that it's had a better start to a year. And it's kind of wild when you take into account like all the progress progress has made since in technology. You know, the dot-com bubble, uh, better than the bull market from 09 to COVID essentially better than all the FANG stocks going public in their growth. It was this six months. And it just kind of made me think, is this a very isolated issue within US tech? Because we saw, I think the Dow Jones is only up about 3% year to date, which is very much not tech focused. Um, So I thought I'd take a look around other markets around the world where the tech focus wouldn't be as prominent. And yeah, it makes for some pretty interesting reading. So Amory and I have talked a lot about Japanese stocks here recently, and we're clearly not the only ones. So the Nikkei, the Nikkei 225, which is the main Japanese stock index, the 225 largest companies there, that's up nearly 30% for the first six months. So it's just on the NASDAQ's heels. And now our most recent charging and fearless from Amory is actually a really interesting business there as well. It's grown at about 200% year over year. So that always helps. Um, 
I mentioned a lot of big American activist investors are moving into the region. Warren Buffett recently doubled down on some big bets there too. So it seems like there's been a shift in approach in terms of regulation and oversight and we're moving back towards creating shareholder value, which was kind of on the long finger for a long time because as we talked about a lot on this show, the Jap- the Japanese asset price bubble was kind of this major shock to the company. And it's interesting, mm. we're at about 33,000 points, I think, for the Nikkei. We're still well below the high it set in 1989. So that just shows like long-term where Japanese stocks have been. Um, then in Europe, the DAX in Germany has risen by around 14% year to date. So a lot of this is powered by two large tech giants. I think Dinosaur might be harsh, but maybe fair too in uh, SAP and Siemens. So SAP is up 25% year to date and Siemens is up about 15, 16% year to date. So that's powering about 20% of the DAX there. So we're getting, even though they're all stores, we're still very much tech exposed. So you could see it uh, moving sympathetically with the NASDAQ. In France, Le CAC 40 is up about 12% over the same time period. When we talk about France, it's all about luxury brands, cosmetics, clothing, all of that. So it probably only tells us a small part of the story in terms of economy-wise and everything else, but it's still favorable. Anyways, we'll say that. Remember uh, Bernard Dano from LVMH? He was the richest man in the world there for a while. I think Musk overtook him again. Um, but yeah, all of his top stocks are LVMH, L'Oreal, Hermes. So while the stock market is doing good, it doesn't tell us an awful lot about the rest of the economy. Um, in the middle of all this, the FTSE 100 in London was actually flat for the year, uh, so far anyways. So this index is dominated by oil companies, financials. As we flip back to growth, it's not going to do well. It did outperform in 2022, so it's not surprising to see it slow again. Um, aside from that, the political situation in the UK isn't great. We've seen kind of inflation be a lot more sticky there because of brexit and yeah there's even like some regulation issues you see a lot more uk um court cases coming against mergers and acquisitions as well so i'm not sure i think that's kind of keeping investors away from uk stocks even though a lot of the companies there are big multinationals and then lastly we have china which is another underperformer. I was surprised by this because you see at the top of the market there, it is the tech giants like Tencent and Alibaba, but there's there's an awful lot going on there. There's geopolitical tensions. We're still, I know we came out of the zero COVID policy and everyone was expecting that to kind of turbocharge results. It didn't happen. So yeah, there's a lot to unwrap here. I know they're getting in on the chip war with the US is kind of being turbocharged now as well because of AI and just overall concerns around government overreach which has managed to keep kind of the Chinese side of things cooler than other areas but that was kind Mm. of me just taking a quick run through um, some of the international markets and seeing how they're going in in comparison to the US. Is there any market that you're particularly bullish on and is there any market you'd be a little bit bearish on? Uh, I wouldn't go near China just because that's so complex and there's so Mm. many so many issues outside of control for investors in terms of the geopolitical situation. Um, yeah. You could kind of throw the UK in with that as well. Mm. Uh, and then Japan has, as we've talked about a lot, really looks to be kind of turning the ship around in terms of getting these companies back into shape because there's a lot of, I think they call them hidden gems, uh, there, mm. where these these massive conglomerate companies that own stock in other companies and you can't actually extract the true value out of it and now they're turning around and bringing in more corporate governance and seeing more buybacks and seeing more kind of shareholder value creation so i think if you're looking at that <coughs> that mm. would be my thing yeah i tend to agree with exactly what you said i mean i have been burned on chinese investments either ill-timed or really ill-chosen so many times over 25 years i've tried and tried again and something always comes and bites you on the backside uh japan the one thing i'd say about japan i do agree and, and i mean like warren buffett has, has moved his attention to japan is just we really need to look for companies that are not 
uber reliant on only selling to the japanese market most especially when you consider the aging population it's got the mm. most extreme inverted um uh what's the funnel or it's like a little you know the way Pop that you I know the population graph thing, the population yeah. graph it usually looks like a pyramid in other words or is it sorry no uh what which way do they do it so in other words the if older it's, if it's yeah the fast yeah. growing countries look like a pyramid and then yes slow growing ones get very top heavy essentially that's right and it looks yeah. like an upside down pyramid sorry for our listeners who don't know what we're rabbiting on about <laughs> it, it basically shows the the number of people age one age two all the way up 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 to age 85 age 90 and clearly as you go up through the years the higher you go up in age the narrow it becomes and that's kind of in a healthy functioning economy and the number one factor for driving economic performance in any country is that the average age is young or and trending downwards whereas in japan it's it's completely that pyramid is upside down it's balanced on its tip and that's a really big economic problem over the long term but that's not to say that japanese giant businesses are not deriving their revenue from 140 other countries and they are so i i'm with you mike i think there's some amazing opportunities in japan i'm looking at a few and as you said the one that amory uh filtered out for charging a fearless there on tuesday is just superb yeah absolutely uh, i'm just gonna ask you now what's been your biggest story of the year mm, right biggest story of, of the year so far well for those who work only with information such as us here mike uh coders writers lawyers journalists uh researchers accountants like these these professions are information professions only uh it has to be ai and i know we've kicked the subject around all the time and i'm a bit tired listening to myself now those who work with their hands and their minds such as like surgeons farmers builders barbers and so on they're safer for now but in a previous show i gave a history of ai starting way back i think with alan turing um but as i mentioned uh for most people on the street chat gpt is the accessible uh, version of ai for every person and as we all know it's a chatbot built on open ai's llms and, and now this beast of a machine this absolute beast of a thing has redefined ai standards it's it's proving that machines can now understand human language they can understand human interaction and most importantly machines can now understand mimic and improve our logic the way we string a sequence of facts together to derive an outcome they do it in very many cases faster and better now OpenAI itself was founded by elon musk and a couple of others and as far as i can tell its last valuation was around 29 billion dollars and even when you just kind of get a nose for looking at a business and you know the impact it's having on on the number of people it's having an impact on um you got to think that that's quite low 29 billion dollars but um so uh and the thing about chat gpt is that at this stage it's improving every millisecond of the year like we are pumping information into it we're saying hey i've got this legal document can you write it nicer for me can you help me with this can you help me with that it's being pumped with information incessantly and that that is um really delivering a machine that has a profound influence on uh, all things to do with research and development and and it's being adopted across so many industries like customer service um education content creation um, so many other aspects of business healthcare entertainment and so on and so on in fact just before we went live i saw an email arrive from the mit tech review which i'm subscribed to and eric schmidt the former ceo of google i think uh yeah he was former ceo yeah he uh, he has written an op-ed called this is how ai will transform the way science gets done so the way scientists approach all things to, I mean, science is such a broad category. It covers economics, physics, physics chemistry, biology, and uh, everything else, chemistry. Um, uh, but they're, they're, they're like the way these fields of academic pursuit have been pursued to this point, it has been, is being disrupted by AI. And Eric Schmidt wrote about that. But Mike, and I haven't read it yet, so <laughs> I don't know what it says. It literally just arrived. But um, I have a story, Mike, that's not widely reported uh, simply because it comes from proprietary data that we've 
developed here in my Wall Street for a business activity we're working on. And again, it was something that Ben Carlson wrote that brought it to mind for me. And to set the scene, history books have made it seem like everyone was wiped out during the Great Depression stock market crash. Um, but way back in 1929, most people didn't own stocks. Like that. Like you, if we got in a time machine and popped out in average Smallville in America in 1929, nobody owned shares. That's just the way it was, you know. Um, only one and a half million people owned stocks in 1929 uh, out of a population of approximately 120 million people at that time. So just a little more than 1% of the population of America own shares. Yeah. Very appropriate, the 1%. Yes, isn't it though? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the cra- the crash was an awful thing. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen that black and, those black and white pictures from the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street at the time. Uh, there's a very famous one with a well-dressed man in a nice suit and a hat, and he's standing beside a real nice car. I suppose all cars were probably nice in 1929, but it looks like a fancy machine. And he's saying $100 will buy this car, must have cash, lost everything on the stock market. But, you know, that's, um, you know, he already was privileged. Now, I'm not so sure he was so privileged when he was selling the car, but he was part of an elite set of people who were participating in this economic uh, machine that really was the preserve of, of those who understood how it worked. But the economy collapsing at that time And 25% unemployment had a far bigger impact than the stock market for the average town for Smallsville. But to just kind of push on with the point, the barriers to entry uh, for stock investing way back in 1929 were so, so much higher than they are today. We don't even have a clue. Like nobody really, when I say nobody, no normal average person pursuing a career from small town America or even big town America really understood much about how the stock market functioned. And that was until Merrill Lynch decided to change it. And they tasked a guy called Lewis Engel with creating the first modern advertisement for the stock market in 1948. And that ad appeared in the New York Times and it was a full page piece. And... um. It was 7,000 words, and this was, in essence, the first investing investing blog that was ever published, and it explained to people why they should buy shares, how to buy stocks, you know, why why share prices change, how stocks are traded. In fact, what was published in the New York Times way back when was, you know, what I wanted to get off my chest when I was a 20-something-year-old and put an ad in the Irish Times here in Ireland to say, look, if you want to learn everything about stock market investing, uh, come to uh, Beauties of Balls Bridge and bring 100 quid with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the time, I said, you don't have to pay if you don't like it. Um, and everybody arrived and everybody paid. So, you know, that was the kernel of my Wall Street. But little did I know that way back when, uh, that uh, Merrill Lynch had beat me to the idea in 1948. And they, Merrill said when this thing went into the New York Times that um, they had 3 million responses to the ad. Now, print advertising nowadays does not do a whole lot. Anyone who spends money in print advertising will tell you it, it's very hard to draw a dotted line between your ad spend and responses or sales, but they got 3 million responses to this ad, which gave their brokerage millions of prospective clients. Now, if any of those 3 million people put their money into the market in late 1940, it was incredibly fortuitous timing because the 1950s bull market was one of the biggest in history. These people, it was analogous to... um, the gold rush, you know, in San Francisco, of, what is it, 1849, was it? Uh, I was thinking of San Francisco 49ers. Um, just yeah, call it the gold rush, I think. The gold rush, <laughs> no, just to the gold rush. So the problem is that most people still weren't interested in the stock market because most people didn't have any disposable income to invest. I, I mean, look, I, I, when you think of, to our listeners, think of your grandparents, no matter where you you grew up, whether it was in the west of Ireland or in Moldova or Italy or New Zealand, Australia or America. Think of your grandparents. Think of their parents. Think of your great, great grandparents. And frankly, scarcity was a backdrop to their existence. 
and there are a privileged few. I mean, I have a, one of my best friends has a picture on his mantelpiece of his granddad walking along the lakes of Loch Carr with Walt Disney. And that's, he was one of the very, very privileged, you know, great grand, uh, grandparents that I know of. But, you know, yeah. my grandparents, my four grandparents, my eight great grandparents were of modest, very modest um, background. Now, put differently, so scarcity is a backdrop, and, and that's the way it was in 1929. Put differently, in 1929, 60% of American families had incomes that placed them below the poverty line. Isn't that amazing? Three out of five families were in poverty. So, like, don't talk to me about stock investing. That's just cracker stuff. I, I don't have money to invest in shares. I'm trying to keep my family fed. I'm a humble uh, insurance salesman in 1929. I can't, you know, I can barely make ends meet. So, look, the average pay for manufacturing workers in America was up 90% from 1939 to 1945 wages nearly doubled the disposable income for everyone in america well for all americans i guess it's average rose 75 percent between 1929 and 1950 america went through an economic yeah. revolution post-war revolution and by 1945 the gdp gross domestic product of america was 2.4 times the size of the economy in 1939 the year the war broke out so like there was a really these big gears were changing in america and i'm by the way gonna fast forward and bring it to the now because <laughs> i remember i haven't forgotten your 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 question i don't think i have you can ask me again <laughs> if i've drift but this financial historian called frederick lewis allen said called this kind of growth in gdp by 2.4 from the beginning to the end of world war ii in america he said it was the most extraordinary increase in production that had ever been accomplished in five years in all economic history. And that's not putting too fine a point on it. It was mind-blowing. America was the place to be post-World War. It was a wonderful place. Now, let's get back in that time machine and come back to now, to 2023, and the data that we have here from my Wall Street. Um, so, 50% of all brokerage accounts in America and actually in the world have been opened since January 2020. Can you imagine that? But hold on, the plot thickens. 90% of all brokerage accounts out there are completely dormant. They did not make a trade last quarter, which is driven by investor uncertainty so let's just let me just say that again the amount of brokerage accounts in the us has doubled in three years but 90 percent of them is dormant we've gone from a place where a tiny minority of individuals had a brokerage account to the vast majority of people have yet those people this majority are paralyzed by inaction at the moment for a load of reasons that we can all see because because we've all gone through we've all shared a couple of years we've we've shared experience and there's been a collage of events that nobody could have guessed and there's no point in recounting them here because we've all lived through them but like virtually everyone has access to a brokerage account by dropping their thumb and they're not doing anything um so we went from one percent stock ownership in 1929 to 19 percent in 1983 to 60% by the year 2000 and frankly now in America we're pretty much at saturation anyone who wants it's a bit like the mobile phone it went through this high adoption curve and now anyone who wishes to have a brokerage account has one and 95 percent of all the stocks in 1940 and 1950 were owned by individual investors they these were buy and hold investors uh, who just wanted to earn some dividends um, and they were the people who who were kind of doing 95 percent of the trading today that number is like two percent with 98 percent of trading activity being carried out by institutional investors and machines so everything is inverted 
everything is inverted. Everything has gone on its head. The majority of buys were done by the minority of people in 1929. Now the majority of buys are done by machines, yet everybody has a brokerage account. And this is a very interesting thing for me um, as someone who spends all my time thinking about it and has built a business and kind of put my name and reputation on making sure that people do this successfully. Look, today with your phone, in no time, with no commissions, you can buy a share in CRISPR technologies, space age technology. You can buy a company CRISPR technology for the price of a round of drinks, yet people are not doing it. it I mean, that's the problem with, with everybody. They just aren't thinking straight. Like, for this, for 70 bucks or something, imagine you can own a piece of the tech that won the um, Nobel Prize for Medicine a couple of years back, two women, uh, Emmanuel Chapantier and Jennifer Diana invented this thing that will cure diseases that previously were designed, they were seen as incurable. You can own a bit of that tech for 70 bucks and people are like, no, I, I don't know, I'm a bit worried. Please. So the world has changed. And um, so what was your question? Anyway, that's my talking for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the question was, but I love the history lesson. Well, your question question was, what's the biggest story of the year? And and the my answer is my first line answer is AI. My deeper, um, I suppose, more thought out answer is that we all have access to this wealth creating machine. Um, it has been a tough couple of years. Seven companies have made most of us feel dumb or inadequate or not very good at investing at all because everything else has dropped in price but some of the greatest opportunities opportunities in the world are staring at us in the face and yet there's nothing standing in the way there's no effort required we should buy it hold it and leave it there and even if you say i'm going to give this to my great grandkids i don't care i don't want it just do it now Follow that, says the man. Yeah, right. Look, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hit you with a question, Mike. You mentioned the doom and gloom of 2022 earlier, um, and I guess much of it is brought on by the idea of this kind of recession, this impending recession. It seems like we've been reading for mm, a year, maybe a year and a half about a recession. It's coming soon. It's coming soon. Have these concerns disappeared as market sentiment has changed? Yeah, you remember it was about this time last year when everyone and their mother was predicting a recession, not even predicting a recession, but almost guaranteeing it. Um, yeah. And then it's all this talk of hard landings, soft landings, etc., etc. And we haven't seen that yet. I think it would be incredibly premature to say we're out of the woods. Uh, but what's proven, what's been proven is that both the economy and the job market, and I suppose the stock market, looking at 2023, although you have to take into account basically all of 2022 as well there but it's all been much more resilient in the face of rising rates than anyone kind of expected so mm. the commerce department came out there this week and said that gdp grew at two percent in the first quarter of 2023 that was up from its previous estimate of 1.3 percent they're busy economists far and wide are busy moving their estimates up for the second quarter of gdp growth as well now i know the u.s doesn't go by the two consecutive quarters of economic contraction anymore to define a recession but it does seem like the outlook what, what did they do now? <laughs> it's, it's very subjective uh, like kind of eight economists come together and decide oh. on a bunch of different factors yeah so oh, yeah. i don't know there's technical recessions and there's official recessions and oh. i'm not sure but anyways but it does seem like the outlook right now is a lot rosier than this time last year yeah um so yeah there's actually an interesting dialogue that because the recession was so predicted it actually helped negate it or at least slow it down. Yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. So like yeah. company leaders pull back on spending, they reduce their risk exposure in anticipation of a recession just enough so that things cool down without overheating. Do you know what I mean? Like the kind yeah. of the the boom before the bust was really um shallowed out, we'll say, instead mm -hmm. of kind of you know, moving very, very fast until you crash. That didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, interesting, though, from the Wall Street Journal this week, uh, they just published a piece about a rich session. Have you ever heard that? No, never heard of it. Sounds like a great club to be in. Where, where are you <laughs> this is this is going to be the highlight of like tiny violin playing everywhere. But it, it, it is an interesting concept because it has effects that will say I don't want to use the word trickle down because it's got bad connotations, but that will have a wider effect on the economy as a whole. So. Basically, the top earners, relatively speaking now, 
are finding it harder than everyone else at the minute. So we have the tiny violins, don't worry. Oh, but tough, it's an interesting... My God, I'll tell you what, I'm really enjoying this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm the same, don't worry. But it's an interesting to come out of this. And it makes sense when you think about it, because all the major layoffs we've been seeing have been concentrating in tech. So I take mm. Facebook for an example. It cut, what, like 20,000 jobs or something? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm saying so, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was a big <laughs> Yes, definitely twenty thousand. Agreed. Sound sound confident. <laughs> we'll edit it back. <laughs> yeah, loads. They had they, they 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 cut. I mean, they've all been at it. It was hard yeah, to lift exactly. the Wall Street Journal and without seeing a big number, a comma yeah. in a number, and then layoffs written behind it. Yeah, and the average salary there in the U.S. was pushing three hundred grand. So repeat mm. this process over the rest of the industry, and you get the picture. Meanwhile. Aside from tech, the labor market remains quite strong in spite of the Fed's rate uh, tightening. So you mm. go out and look at the banking sector has been under a load of pressure since the Silicon Valley collapse. Bonuses have been uh, put under pressure as well. I got some stats here. It's another tiny violin session. But yeah. the average bonus paid to New York City securities industries employees, so mm -hmm. financiers basically in 2022 was hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars that's average. down that's the average right. that's down 26 percent from a year earlier and it's actually below pre-pandemic levels after you adjust for inflation so no one is crying for the flutes and suits but it does tell a tale you know there's more here as well so the number of people receiving unemployment benefits in households earning 125 grand or more a year was up more than 40 percent in april than a year mm -hmm. earlier now, if you go down to the people who are earning less than 50 grand a year, this growth was five times less. Mm. Um, wage growth is moving faster for people in the bottom quartile than the top quartile. Uh, Bank of America found that credit card and debit card spendings on discretionary items by higher income households in April was below year below the year before. And then Walmart is actually seeing more custom coming from high-income customers as well. So spending on luxury goods is reportedly slowed way down. So it's interesting because, again, it's it, it's kind of the inverse of what usually happens. Usually the mm. rich stay rich and the people lower down take the brunt yeah. of it. And, and it's yeah. kind of been inversed a bit. Um, yeah. But what it says about the wider economy is that there's maybe slight concern in that the top 40% of income accounts for about 60% of spending. So if we're seeing a tighten up top, it might have longer tail effects further down. But I thought that was quite interesting, the fact that it's affecting the top the top earners for once. So is the, the rest of this year, Mike, I know we're only doing a retro on H1, but if you're a gambling man, and the audience laughs, if you are a gambling man, what, do you think December will close above at or below where we are today below i think i think mm -hmm. the concentration at the top of the s p and the nasdaq is a little concerning and i don't mm. think we can depend on nvidia and tesla and mm. facebook doubling again or apple adding another trillion in market cap i think those mm. moves seem slightly unsustainable for me yeah it's funny i i it's it's back to that magnificent seven i i do my feeling is the Magnificent Seven have topped out and the other uh, 493 will actually continue to grow for the rest of the year. But the net, I mean, everything is measured with one number, the S&P 500. So I tend to agree with you because of the weight of NVIDIA, Apple and all the all the friends. So have you any parting thoughts on the matter, Mike? Anything else to wrap up with? I think it's what we go back to at the very start there with kind of this timing the market and two good years for every one bad we looked at you could look at all the economic data from last year and all the doom and gloom and all the recession calls and everything else and say okay i might get out now because it looks bad and you would have missed what do we say the best start of the year for 40 years for the nasdaq mm -hmm. and, and that kind of jumping in and out is just it's, it's not going to be doable really in the long term so that's why we buy and hold is because you don't miss runs like this. And yeah, it's inevitable that it's going to come back down. That's how the stock market works. But six months or a year down the line, it'll go back up again. And that's oversimplifying things a bit. But I think 
you can undersimplify things and make yourself a life a lot more difficult, especially right. in investing. I mean, it'd be great if we live forever. I, I always suppose you think in 20 year blocks and I do appreciate, unfortunately, we only have a handful of them to live. But honestly, if you just think when you buy something, Asher, I'll give it another 20 years. I, whenever I look at Netflix, I always say, I'll give it another 20 years. It's almost playing with the idea in my mind. It's just we, we really need to take that long term view because the numbers have our back over the long term. Big time. Okay, uh, before we get into big deal or no big deal, we're just going to do a quick promo for Charging and Fearless. So if you like listening to us, you're going to love hearing from us. We are delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market, and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we cover at Charging Fearless, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, or somewhere in between. So that is a completely free stock pitch every week. You'll have it read in about 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. So sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Okay, Emmett, we're going to run through a game of big deal or no big deal here before we finish up. So the first story I have for you is just Tesla posting record sales on a surge in electric car demand. Big deal or no big deal? Yeah, Tesla beat expectations in Q2 and on Sunday it announced that it had produced 480,000 vehicles and delivered, well, nearly all all of them, 466,000. And the majority of production and deliveries were for the Model 3 and the Model Y, um, with 460,000 produced and 446,000 delivered, blah, 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 blah. Look, numbers, numbers, numbers. so i mean it was record for deliveries and and wall street predicted about 447k deliveries versus 480k deliveries so it's not like it was way 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 ahead of what wall street was expecting um but the figures are huge jump a really significant jump from the same quarter a year ago so in q uh, to 2022 tesla reported about a quarter of a million deliveries uh, 254,000 deliveries you know and now we're at 480,000 deliveries um and it set a target of about 1.8 million deliveries this year so the company will post its financial results on july 19th so those who follow tesla know they usually talk about deliveries uh, a week or two before the actual quarter results so big deal or no big deal um i think it's i think it's a big deal but we are witnessing tesla move across the adoption curve quite Mm. fast i mean i was reading in the fortune uh, magazine while i was up in the air um last week how it's the fastest company to rise through the fortune 500 it kind of came in i think all it was like in 27 it came in in sorry in the year 2017 i think it said that it 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 was ranked 400 and something in the fortune 500 and now it's 50 or 50 something so it's the fastest rise through the fortune 500 and tesla had to do what we've seen but it's a big deal. I mean, in a, a couple of years ago on this very podcast, we were talking about tens of thousands of deliveries. Now we're talking about nearly a half, a, a, you know, n- nearly a half a million deliveries, and they will absolutely move fa- uh, further and faster than we know. So I, I, I'm going to say it's um, a big deal, but it needed to be a big deal. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I'm actually coming around to Tesla a little bit, which sounds weird coming out of my mouth, but. I was kind of of the opinion that once everyone gets into electric cars, it'll just be, you know, not a race to the bottom per se, but not far off. But you see the losses Ford are making 20 grand or 30 grand losses on every electric car they produce and stuff. I think. Yeah. The head start is there. It's going to help them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah definitely and it's the data it's the data play really and and you know smaller companies medium-sized companies try and make a bigger deal out of the amount of data they've got in a in an argument to support future opportunities and valuations but tesla is the real deal i can't remember the name of its supercomputer but it has a supercomputer in there with hundreds of millions of miles of data from roads all over the world and it is so far ahead of the rest of them so fully autonomous is on its way fleets of a fully autonomous taxis are on their way they're imminent and tesla will have the lead in that space there's no two ways about it right look i'm going to hit you with one mike i love this one 
<laughs> Apple hits production hurdles with Vision Pro headset. Big deal or no big deal? Yeah, no big deal for me, I don't think. Um, we talked about this a while back. It was already an interesting launch for Apple in that it felt like very much a first iteration for the product. You know, even when it does come out, will there be enough of an ecosystem around it and apps to make it fully functional? So I'm not surprised to see some delays for what is, you know, an incredibly complex product. And I know they're having issues with producers and manufacturers and their the the screen is very high tech OLED and yada yada yada. But that being said, like I cut from one million units to four hundred K is significant if it mattered to the bottom line, but for Apple it doesn't matter at all, does it? Um, you know, it just closed a three to trillion dollar market cap this week and investors have bid it up about a trillion dollars since the start of the year. Do you think anyone involved is seriously taking the headset into consideration there when this happens? So yeah, I don't know. Not a big deal. Ironically, producing less could actually add a scarcity factor to it and make it more in demand than if it was widely available. And I had a thought about this as well. And it's a bit tinfoil hatty, but bear with me. Is that <laughs> if if headsets don't take off at all, mm -hmm. that's a good thing for Apple. Everyone's still stuck on their iPhones and bowing to the church of iOS and that's it you know mm. so like if this could slow the growth and maybe even stop wild scale wide scale adoption of headsets i actually think that's a good thing for apple which sounds mm. counterintuitive but uh yeah i know it, it's not a big deal on the grand scheme of things but if you think about it apple kind of wins both ways because mm. if headsets take off it's going to be apples that do and if they don't people are stuck on their iphones so yeah that's my thoughts well, when, I totally agree with you. But when you think about new technologies, um, whether it's uh, space tourism or, or CRISPR or, you know, anything that we discuss here, um, VR, AR, AI, all those things, the one tech that will benefit most people instantly is more efficient batteries. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, for example, would I prefer to have the Apple Watch with a seven-day battery life or a state-of-the-art AR headset. I want a, 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 a watch that I don't need to charge at night. I, yeah. I don't have an Apple Watch I, I, for the very reason I've just described. But when, And then this, this headset, when batteries are not tethered to it with a thing in your back pocket or, or whatever, it, it suddenly gets a little bit more acceptable. So when battery tech has kind of really ramped up, I think then I will take the, um, the Vision Pro and, and, and a lot of these devices with, with a degree of more seriousness than I am at the minute. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like it's an impactful product for apple as a whole anytime mm. soon yeah um okay back to our old friend mr musk i wanted to throw in his fight with mark zuckerberg but i thought it would get a bit silly um but instead is that real is that actually real no. uh, well it's be. it's they say it's real but it's very brava bravado-y i'm not sure maybe it will uh, be anyway yeah um but instead i've come up with the just as ridiculous, if you think about it for long enough, um, Elon Musk applies limits on reading tweets. <laughs> so doesn't sound like a great idea yeah. for business. Big deal, I know. Big yeah. Deal. Well, on Saturday, Twitter began to restrict how many tweets its users could read. And Elon Musk said in a tweet that unverified users could read a thousand tweets and verified users 10,000 tweets per day. And people started to share screen grabs of messages that showed they'd exceeded their daily allowance of tweets. And what he's, what he's really doing here is trying to generate different revenue streams by getting uh, companies to pay for data and convincing individuals to pay for Twitter blue. Uh, and I guess what God give it them one hand, he take it from the other. Is that the expression? Because Twitter's ad revenue surely is going to get a thump from this approach. You know, advertisers don't want to think that their ads are limited um, in the breadth of reach, you know, that they've paid for. Um, but really what, what I think he's up to is slowing down AI systems from learning from the vast amounts of info and data that until now, they could scrape from Twitter 24-7 as fast as the machines could run. Uh, bottom line is, I think it's no big deal for users. It's probably a big deal for advertisers. So if I was to fall one side 
uh, of the line or the other, I'd say no big deal. Just another day at mm. Twitter's offices. I also read that uh, they're just refusing to play their, they're refusing to pay their Google Cloud bill. Have you heard this? Oh, we should do that. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a good idea. Um, I didn't hear that at all. Yeah. They, they it must Google be a big like bill. 300 million or something, and it's just yeah. not paying it. So it could have something mm. to do with that. Oh, yeah. I actually had a funny Twitter experience recently where scrolling was staggered. It wasn't on my iPhone. It wasn't a smooth scrolling um, experience. It was jagged. It was jumping, jumpy, jumpy, jumpy. And I went to other apps and scrolled. I thought, is it something to do with my GPU or is it something to do with RAM? But it wasn't. It was a Twitter uh, feature. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I they have to pay that bill because I, I, it wasn't very nice. I didn't like it one bit. No, I think it's being held together with paper yeah. mache and plasters at the middle. Right, last one, Mike. Snowflake signs new partnerships with NVIDIA and Microsoft to advance its AI capabilities. Big deal or no big deal? Yeah, so I wanted to include this one in with Snowflake after chatting with Michael Lucas on last week's pod. So if you haven't caught that, it's great. He's a experienced AI investor. He launched a fund in three years ago now, um, the AI and deep learning fund from TrueShares. And he kept repeating the fact that AI is nothing without processing power and data. So he called them the food and water of artificial intelligence, which I thought was a good line. Mm. And it's these these building blocks, which are the foundation on which AI is built. So it made an awful lot more sense when I saw the NVIDIA and Microsoft partnership both popping up in the same week with Snowflake's data cloud, so probably the most advanced data pl platform out there. So we're seeing Snowflake add capabilities to NVIDIA and Microsoft customers and just being able to use their data better and uh, build proprietary models on their own data sets. So it might not be immediately obvious, but Snowflake is going to be a huge player in the AI space. and. It's not surprising that I penned these deals uh, with the two biggest names there in the same week. So big deal for me, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. I love Snowflake. I'm an investor in Snowflake. Um, big believer in its long-term opportunity. And this just is one of those giant proof points. Yeah, and it's just one of those underlying AI picks that wouldn't immediately come up at first glance. So I thought that was a good one. Um, okay, we're going to leave it there. But before we do, I just want to give a quick word from our friends and sponsors of Vodafone Business. Uh, Vodafone Business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they are so much more. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer a telecoms provider. They're a comprehensive technology partner. So they're stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember Vodafone Business is there to support, guide and empower you every step of the way. Whew. Okay, Emmett, thanks for joining me and everyone, thanks very much for listening to another week of Stock Club. That's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, get you in touch, you can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, give us a review, send us to your friends, do whatever you want, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.